Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you this morning. Father, we thank you for your mercy in sending your Son as a payment for our sin. Jesus, we thank you for being obedient unto death, even death on a cross. We thank you for suffering in our place when you were innocent and we were guilty, deserving of punishment. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the permanent ministry of your presence in our lives that convict us of sin and give testimony that we are your children. Thank you for giving us your living word that is inspired. Lord, we pray today that as we gather, you would use this word to shape us, to bring us to wholeness and maturity in Christ, as you desire to do, Lord, in this church. Lord, prepare our hearts for the word that we may be humble and repentant, that we may respond to your word and not just listen. Respond in such a way that the the fruit of your spirit that he desires to manifest in our life that reflects all of your character and all of your glory would be evident in the way that we live, in the way that we treat others, so that you would be glorified. Lord, we ask all of these things with one desire in mind, that your name would be exalted, that you would be made great among the nations, that every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, I pray that you would cause me to decrease, that you may increase. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to open up uh, your Bible to the book of Galatians. In this letter, uh, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write to uh, the church in Galatia that was composed mostly of Gentiles and Jews. And his main purpose in writing uh, is to refute a false gospel that had been arisen. So I want to divide us right down the middle here, okay? We're going to go right down the middle, right where Troy is. Hey, Troy. Over this way and then back over to the other side. All of you on this side, I want you to imagine that you were raised in Judaism, Your entire life, you memorized the scripture, you know the Torah, your parents would take you by the hand of the synagogue, Uh, you would offer sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. This is all that you knew. This is your life. You didn't eat bacon. I'm very sorry. No bacon, no pork in your diet, no tacos del pastor, which are just delicious. No, no tacos of pastor, no, no arabes, nothing like that. And one day, as your parents were going to the synagogue, they ran into a, a, a guy that was a Pharisee that used to be really well known, but he's kind of in disrepute, named Paul. And Paul started to talk to your parents, and he said, you know what? The Messiah that we've been waiting for came, and this is what we did with him. And now he calls on everyone everywhere to repent. This is the true Messiah. And your parents had their eyes open and the, the Spirit worked in their life and, and, and they placed their faith in Christ. So they said, hey, you know what? We're not going to the synagogue anymore. We're going to this local church over here in Galatia. It's a house church. And that's where you were raised. You guys over here, you were raised in paganism. Okay? You did not uh, go to the synagogue. You can eat all the bacon you want. Uh, you would worship many gods. You would offer sacrifices even to unknown gods in fear of what they might do in retribution if you did not recognize those deities. 
You heard Paul. Your dad, your, your dad went on a trip. He left Galatia and he's passing, you know, uh, through Greece and he gets to Athens and, and he stops in the, uh, this place and, and the, these guys are talking philosophy and he hears this guy come up and he starts talking about a new philosophy. And he says, the God that is unknown that you are offering sacrifices to is the creator of all people. And he chose when you were going to live. He chose where you were going to live. And he did all this for one reason in Acts 17, 26, that you might seek after God. That is the only reason. And your parents that day, they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And your dad got back to Galatia and he said, man, Paul told us there's a church over here. Let's go check it out. So they knocked on the door. Now imagine these two groups coming together. Jews and Gentiles. Your entire life you've learned that you are justified and made righteous before God based on your obedience to the Mosaic law. And now you've got these people over here that come in and you're, you're, you're breaking bread together. You're having church together. They've never, they don't even know what the law is. And this was the problem in the church in Galatia that Paul is confronting. This group, a, a small group among you, not all of you, a small group among you arose called the Judaizers. And they said to this group, the only way to really be declared righteous before God is to obey parts of the Mosaic law, specifically circumcision. They said, not so fast, Gentile brothers. You think it's going to be that easy? It's not. There's more you have to do. This was the error. And besides being an error, friends, this is anti-gospel. This is anti-faith. Anything that we would seek to add to the work of Christ erases the work of Christ. This is contrary to biblical grace. So Paul writes this letter to correct this teaching, and Paul is passionate. He starts off this letter and he's like, what happened? Who has fooled you so easily? Because Paul understands what it was like to live this life. And he's seen the people that live this life, and he said, you know what? Only in Jesus Christ, in Christ alone, can we find the righteousness that we cannot produce for ourselves. So in chapters 1 and 2, Paul defends his apostleship. He goes, you know what? I just want you to know I've got the authority to take you behind the woodshed. I am an apostle. God's given me that authority. And then in chapter 3 to 4, he defends justification that is by faith in Christ as the only way to be cleansed from our wickedness. So this is really the double jeopardy question Paul is asking. And this is the question would be good to ask ourselves. We know that in our hearts, as Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seek after God, not even one. So how do people like us become righteous in the presence of a holy God? We're really good at comparing ourselves to other people. They can say, oh, well, I'm better than that person, right? Okay, but unfortunately, that's not God's standard. We are measured according to the holiness of God, and none of us stand a chance there. So this is the the double jeopardy question. How are you made righteous in the presence of a holy God? How? And Paul's answer for that is there can only be one answer. Jesus Christ. His merit. It is a sin for us to believe that any behavior that we can do can produce merit with God. 
Because that takes away from what Jesus Christ has done for us. So beginning in chapter 5, Paul is going to apply everything he's talked about in chapters 1 and 2. So this morning, what I want to look at are three results or consequences of going the way of the Judaizers. And you might say, you know what? Kevin, there's no Judaizers here this morning. That's true. But this word that was written uh, 2,000 years ago is still applicable for us today because there is still the sin of believing that we can offer something to God that would, he would accept as merit, that would somehow cause him to love us more. And this is really, really the capsule, the, the crux of grace. And if you forget anything else this morning, don't forget this. <laughs> there is nothing that you can do that would cause God to love you more. And there is nothing that you can do that would cause God to love you less. Because his love for you is not dependent upon your behavior. It is dependent upon your identity in Jesus Christ. You are his child if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. So the first thing we're going to see, the very first consequence or result of trying to produce our own righteousness or earn favor with God that can only be brought through Christ, we see in verse 1, you become a slave. You lose your freedom in Jesus Christ. You become a slave. Look at what Paul says in in verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. This is the message of the gospel. To understand that we are worthy of punishment for our sin, for our rebellion, for our wickedness. That I deserve God's righteous judgment. That's what Romans says. His judgment is righteous. It is right that I would be subject to his wrath for my sin. Without Christ, we are slaves to sin. Sin calls us and we respond. Sin gives us an invitation and we run. Listen to how Ephesians 2 explains this. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And here we have two beautiful words in verse 5, in verse 4. But God. Those are beautiful words. (laughs) Dead in sin, unresponsive, but God. Being rich in mercy because of his great, love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive when we were walking according to the course of this world when we are following the prince of the power of the air when we are acting like sons of disobedience when we are living in the lust of our flesh the desires of our flesh and our mind children of wrath in his great love he made us alive how did he do that he did that through faith through our faith in the sacrifice of his son. It says, he, we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Jesus Christ. This is the union that we have with Jesus Christ. What happened to Christ happened to us when we placed our faith in him. We died, and then we rose again to newness of life. This is illustrated in baptism. When we were dead, he made us alive with Christ. He raised us with him. He seated us with him in heavenly places so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness. In this verse that we know, 
in verse 8 and 9, For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. Not of works, not of merit, not of anything that we could do or offer. Only through Jesus Christ. So my sin, my shame, my guilt, think about your sin, your shame, and your guilt being cast on Jesus Christ that afternoon. Placed on him. He carried it. He took it as if he was guilty. And as a result of faith, we are forgiven. All that belongs to Christ is mine, is what this text says. God seated us with Christ in heavenly realms. This text in Ephesians tells us that God has given us all these riches in Christ. This is the gospel message. And it is precisely this reason that Paul is so passionate. Because they're walking away from it. They're abandoning that message. They are subject. Look at verse 1. Do not be subject to a yoke of slavery. This is the word for being weighed down and burdened. He said, you are, in Christ you've been made free. And you're putting on a burden again. One afternoon we did a study, a uh, Bible study with the boys uh, from the boys' home. And to illustrate the weight of sin, I put a backpack on Jesus, one of the boys, and I brought some weights from our house. And I put a little weight in it. And then I put some more. And we got to the point where, you know, he's about as skinny as a twig. He's about this high. And he got to the point where he was falling over from the backpack. And we opened up the scripture and we said, Christ said, I, I will take your burden. My burden is light. And we started to remove those weights. We said, this is what happens when Christ frees us. There are two errors that we can make. Two ditches and two pitfalls. And Paul is confronting both of those here. One is lawlessness. That is, we live, old word is licentiousness, if you have a KJV. Lawlessness. We live any way that we want to. And we look at grace as a credit card. And we say, you know what, I can do whatever I want because Christ will forgive me. And the scripture says when we do that, we trample underfoot the grace of Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ. It's living as if there were no consequences. The other one is legalism. And legalism is living as if my behavior gains favor with God. Both of these are sinful because they both are not depending on Christ. Some feel that living in lawlessness uh, is freedom, but we know that's slavery. Some feel, feel that living in the safety of legalism is, is good. You know, it's that security blanket. I know I can do this, and uh, I believe that's going to gain favor with God. That is also slavery. So he says, keep standing firm. This is deliberate and purposeful effort to stay in the gospel freedom. It requires faith this morning for every one of us to believe that God is satisfied with us based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That there is nothing else you could possibly contribute that could cause God to love you more. Because this morning he sees you in the beloved. He sees you in Jesus Christ. Standing firm means that once I trust in Christ, I can't trust in myself. My professor in Dallas Seminary, Stan Toussaint, Stanley Toussaint, he would often say, God is satisfied. And he would say, you don't believe it, do you? <laughs> God is satisfied. 
He is completely satisfied with the sacrifice of his son on your behalf. So first of all, we see trusting in our own righteousness in verse 1 causes us to lose our freedom. But not only that, believing that favor with God can be earned by our behavior subjects us to slavery in verses 2 through 6 because we become a debtor. You not only become a slave, you also become a debtor. You give up those riches in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 2 through 6. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision, this part of the Mosaic law, this, this sign of the pact that God had with Abraham, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are awaiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but what? Faith. Working through love. So why could we be in debt? Well, the first reason in verse 2, because we are in debt, we have a moral debt because we are declaring the sacrifice of Christ to be insufficient. He said, you know what? It wasn't enough what Jesus did. I've got something else that I can bring to the table. I've got a contribution to make, God. It's not that we weaken what Christ did for us. We can't do that. That's not possible. Uh, truth is truth. Uh, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient whether we believe it or not. We can believe that gravity doesn't exist. But if we get on the roof of this building and jump off, gravity isn't going to say, oh, I'm sorry, you didn't believe it. No, gravity exists and we're going to come down pretty hard. The gravity of God's judgment also falls on mankind whether they believe it or not. The truth must be obeyed to benefit from it. So those who trust in their own righteousness show that what Christ did on the cross wasn't valid. It needed more help. But secondly, we're in moral debt because we're obligated to obey the whole law. Look at verse 3. Every man who receives circumcision... You've got to obey all the law. This is where God uncovers the hypocrisy of the legalist. Luke chapter 18, you remember that guy that was praying that day? He's like, oh God, I thank you. Oh, I thank you that I'm so good. And I'm not like this guy. Well, God's standard is you have to obey all 613 commands of the Mosaic law, not just one. So how did you do with the other 612 boxes that need to be checked off? We cannot do that. Only Christ was able to do that. Our sinful hearts can hardly resist the opportunity to show others and to show God what we've been able to do. The famous preacher Harry Ironside was convicted about pride in his life and he desired to be more humble. So he spoke to the men in his church. He said, you know, I'm struggling with pride. One of the men said, you know what you need to do, Pastor? You need to get a sandwich board. On each side, write Bible verses and walk up and down the streets of Chicago yelling out the Bible verses for an entire day. What would you have done? He did that. Harry Ironside put on the sandwich board. He went to downtown Chicago and he yelled out the Bible verses. You know, he got some different responses. He said he got back to his office. He took it off. And the very first thing that went through his mind was, I'll bet there's not another man in Chicago who would have done that. Our sinful hearts just cannot help it. We, we, we try to do a good thing, but it's corrupted by sin. 
Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? Not even you and I know the depths of our own heart. Galatians 3.10, he says earlier that if we try to earn faith, if we have faith in earned merits, we condemn ourselves and we are cursed. So we can't obey the whole law. We also become obligated, we become a debtor in verse 4 because we fall from grace. So we see, uh, we declare the sacrifice of Christ to be inefficient. Uh, We're obligated to obey the whole law. And in verse 4, we fall from grace. Friends, this isn't a question here of whether or not these people would lose their salvation. We don't find that language in the scripture. There isn't language of unadoption. There isn't language of unjustification. We don't see that process. What we're talking about here is not two states of being saved or unsaved. Paul is referring to two systems, law and grace. And what he wants them to understand is the system of grace cannot be mixed with the system of law. Oil and water, they cannot be mixed. It's like Patriots and Giants fans, Red Sox and Yankees fans. You know, they just, they just don't mix. You get them together and, and love you, Dad. Bad things happen, you know. Uh, but grace and law cannot be mixed. When we talk about salvation, we cannot add law to it. We cannot bring merit into that conversation unless it is a reference to the merit of Jesus Christ on our behalf. There is nothing we can offer. If we try to mix law with grace, we destroy grace. And fourthly in this section, the last way we become a debtor morally is we exchange faith for the external works of the flesh. Look at verses 5 through 6. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Externals cannot be the judgment of whether or not we have true faith. James says they are an evidence of true faith. Tell me that you're saved. Show me. If you have faith, I want to see it. In Habakkuk, the righteous man, how will he live? By faith. Paul used that language in Romans. Paul is saying we walk by faith, not by sight. The Judaizer is saying, no, we don't. We walk by sight. And then we can have faith. And my friends, here's the problem with legalism. Legalism robs Jesus Christ of the glory that only he is due. Because it says, look what I've done. Not look what Jesus Christ has done for me. It is no longer what God did. It is what I do for him. So we see in verse 5-1, if we choose to go down this path, we become a slave and we lose our freedom. In 5-2-6, through six, we also become a debtor because we reject our riches in Jesus Christ. And in verse 7-12, through 12, we're going to see the third consequence. We become a follower of a false gospel. So we don't just lose our freedom and our riches. We lose our way. We lose our path, this gospel path. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about here. He says, you are running well. This language comes from the Greco-Roman world of athletic competitions. You go down to any track here in Concord, and you're going to see these lines, right? Paul's saying, you know what? You guys were in the gospel lane, and you were running really well. The Judaizers came, and they pushed you out. You're not running in that gospel lane anymore. 
So he's saying you need to keep running in the truth of the gospel. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The truth isn't something that's obeyed one time. It is continually obeyed, this truth of the gospel. They need to get back into the gospel lane. They need to express day and day, day after day, in the way that they live their lives, that I have no merit in what I can do, only in what Jesus Christ has done for me. So, brothers and sisters, we need to be alert for hindrances in our own life to running in the lane of the gospel. There are hindrances that prevent us from running well. The first one is sinful behavior. We don't gain merit with God as the merit we receive from Jesus Christ, but we need to be growing in holiness. Once we were justified, God promised us we would be glorified. And in between justification and glorification is this thing called sanctification, where God is purging us of sin. He's he's shaping us and transforming us into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. We all know that verse, Romans 8, 28, right? All things work together for good to those that love God, that are called according to his purpose. Sometimes that doesn't make a lot of sense. We say, God, how can this be used for good? The next verse reminds us in 829 that God is using those good things to conform us to the likeness of his son. Those circumstances, although although sometimes they aren't uh, pleasurable, are God's laboratory, his hammer, his chisel, to shape us into the image of Christ. So this morning, just want us to think, is there something that is hindering our running in this lane of the gospel that is keeping us from walking in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? A sinful behavior, a sinful relationship, a sinful habit, a sinful attitude, lack of forgiveness. The second thing that can keep us from running in that gospel lane is the immediate context, what we saw here, false teaching. And we're going to explore that more in verses 8 through 12. But the most important thing in a race is not how you start. I ran a couple half marathons when I lived in Texas, and the first one I ran in January And my goal was to be in under two hours. I wanted to run a sub two. I crossed the finish line at one hour, 59 minutes. It was right at the threshold. So I was feeling pretty confident. So later that summer, later that year, in August, there was another race in Texas called the Hottest Half. That should have been an indicator for me that I was doing something I shouldn't have done. But I decided I was going to run that race. I was feeling confident. And uh, running in 50-degree, 45-degree weather is a lot different than running in like almost 100-degree weather with humidity that you can just breathe and feel. So as I get past mile 10 of this 13.1-mile race, I start to see paramedics. I start to see people laid out in the grass with IVs and people that are hungover. And uh, it wasn't very encouraging to me (laughs) as I kept going. And my running partner, we said, we're going to cross that line together. He's like, you know what? I'll see you at the finish line. So he took off, and I just kept going. I felt like I was going to start that race so well. But there were factors that came in to the race and into my own life that changed that perception. False teaching is one of those things. Scripture says here, it is like yeast. Look at verse 8. This false teaching, we have a warning. 
It results in divine judgment. This persuasion did not come from him. Paul is saying, you know what? This idea that you could earn favor with God on merit did not come from God. A little leaven lump, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So Paul is saying, let's be very clear. These false teachers do not speak for God. They do not represent the gospel. The message of the false teacher has a very different ending. Because the point of origin is different. If I were to tell you this morning that I put just one drop of poison in here, would you drink it? I said, it's just one drop, man. It's not very much, right? Can't be that bad. Most false teaching is just that way. It is just enough false teaching. It is just shy enough of the gospel. But it is poison. It is harmful. Even a little is not healthy. This was the false teaching of the Judaizers. I know there aren't a lot of Judaizers in the church today, uh, but Paul had a charge to Timothy. As you read the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, I love these books. I think they were written, uh, you know, they're, they're written to a man in ministry, so I, I love to go over them over and over again with our seminary students. And as I look at these three books, First and Second Timothy, Titus, there's three things that I see that just, keep coming out that Paul says to Timothy over and over again. He says, watch your life, watch your doctrine, and watch out for false teachers. Those are the three things he just keeps hitting over and over and over again. You walk in integrity. You set an example for, for in faith, in love, in purity. And then also, preach the word. Do not deviate. Watch your life, watch your doctrine. And the third thing is watch out for false teachers. This morning I'd like to discharge uh, that third area as we talk a little bit about a false teaching that is existing today in 2022. Judaizers are not so prevalent, but there is a teaching over the last couple years that is coming out more and more, and it is called progressive Christianity. Uh, And that is linked oftentimes with something called the deconstruction of faith. Have you heard that term, deconstruct? You need to deconstruct. People are deconstructing and progressive Christianity. The fundamental tenet of progressive Christianity is that Christianity itself is always progressing and evolving. Do they mean that we're progressing in our faith as like, oh, you know, we're growing, we're progressing? No, that is not what they mean. In our desire to be transformed to Christ and he is the objective truth? No. They believe that truth is not objective. They believe that the word of God is actually continually evolving, and that Paul was stuck in his time and in his place, and now we need to read the word of God in our time and in our place. And I want to tell you this morning that progressive Christianity is not progress, and it is not Christianity. This last year, I did a two, two sessions, a three-hour conference on progressive de- Christianity and the deconstruction of faith. And if we had the time today, I'd love to do that, but we don't have that time. <laughs> but I just want to mention really quickly five things that are five characteristics of progressive Christianity. Because although Judaizers are not in the church today, this is coming out of the woodwork. We are seeing friends, we are seeing the children of fellow missionaries, fellow pastors that are walking down this path. And you need to understand 
what they are teaching so that we can combat it and we can pass it through the filter of the Bible. So just want to share really quickly five things and give you a tool. Uh, uh, the name Elisa Childers, like the word child, E-R-S. Elisa Childers has done a lot of work in this area. And on her blog, she talks about five signs your church may be heading towards progressive Christianity. The first one is there's a lowered view of the Bible. This is a false teaching, that there's a lower view of the Bible. And you hear that in comments like, you know what? The Bible's just a human book. Uh, I don't agree with Paul on that. Um, the Bible contains the Word of God. So the first one is the, the Word of God is, is automatically lowered. It's not inspired and inerrant. The second is feelings are emphasized over facts. And that sounds like this. You know what? That verse doesn't resonate with me. You know, I, I just don't feel that's true for me. Um, I really thought, you know, uh, homosexuality was a sin, but then I, I, I had some friends who were, who were, who were in that, and, and, you know, I realized I just have to love them. It's not a sin. Um, I just can't believe that God would send good people to hell. That's what that sounds like. Feelings over facts. The third area, essential Christian doctrines become open for reinterpretation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't actually happen. It's a symbol of the new life that God gives. The the death of Jesus Christ, it it was accidental. He was a victim. Uh, Bad people did that to him. It didn't have to happen that way. He kind of got ambushed. The idea of a literal hell that's, that's very offensive, and, and we don't really need to talk about that. That has to be reinterpreted. The fourth, historic terms are redefined. Propitiation, the, 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 the wrath of God being satisfied through the death of Christ. Redemption, these terms are being redefined. It's not our job to talk to people about sin. We just have to love them. And fifth, the last one is the heart of the gospel message shifts from redemption to social justice. And that becomes the priority. Sin doesn't separate us from God. We're made in his image. Uh, There is a graduate from Moody Bible Institute who finished with a degree in theology, and I've listened to him preach, and it turns my stomach. And that's exactly what he says. He says, you know what? God desires that none would perish, and God is God, so he will always get what he wants. So none will perish. That is what he's preaching. We don't really need to preach the gospel. We just have to show love, and that will open the doors. Paul here is confident of greater things with the church, as your pastor and your servant here are confident of greater things with you. Look in verse 10. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. What other view, Paul? I have confidence that you would not place your faith for righteousness in anything or anyone but Jesus Christ. Not even yourself. But the one who is disturbing you will bear judgment, whoever he is. Apparently he didn't know who this was, but he was assured of God's divine judgment on him. He said, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? The stumbling of the block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Paul takes it to an extreme. He says, if you believe that's what makes you righteous, go all the way. Be really righteous. So he talks here about the stumbling block. What is the offense and the stumbling block of the cross? Why would that be an offense to people? 
The cross for the Jew marks the end of the law. The cross is offensive to people because it really means that you are not good enough. It's the end of works salvation. It is the end of making ourselves look good. It is the end of self-promotion. It's over. I've got nothing about, Paul says, if I glory, it is in Jesus Christ alone. And it is the end of judging others. This takes all the fun away from the Judaizers. That's no fun anymore. You mean these guys, these pagans are as righteous as we are? Through Jesus Christ? Paul says that's exactly what I mean. The cross exposes our brokenness and it tells us we can't fix it without Jesus. I remember the day I first understood that. That in my heart there was a darkness and a brokenness that I could not fix. And I said, I've tried so hard, I can't fix this. I can't make it right. And understood that Jesus Christ could do that. In Psalm 118, the scripture says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Every person in this world has a house of faith that they are building. Your neighbors, the people you guys go to school with, your co-workers, they are building a house of faith. And they're using all kinds of bricks to build this house. For some, their faith is in themselves. For others, it's in another religion and another God. And the scripture is saying that there is a chief cornerstone. There is a main stone that they would use in the Greco-Roman world that would give the plomo, the, um, what do you call that, plumb line? That would give the plumb line for the house. It would mean this is straight this way and this is straight this way. And people evaluate that cornerstone of Jesus Christ and they say, no thanks. And they throw it and they build their house. And the scripture says that stone that they tossed is the stone they're going to trip over. That chief cornerstone is a stumbling block because they will be going about and find that that was the one they needed. That was all that they needed. Jesus said to them in Matthew 21, 42, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? I lay a, 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 a stone in Zion in First in, in Peter, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. He who does not believe, this will be a stumbling stone, an offense, a rock that causes him to fall. So the law removes the offense of the cross. So as we think about who Jesus Christ is for us this morning, it is important to place all of our faith uniquely and holy in him for our righteousness. There's a parable in Matthew chapter 13, we all know it, of the sower who goes out to sow seed. Um, we see that there's four different types of soils in that parable. You remember? He throws the soil on four different, throws the seed rather on four different soils. The first one, it fell on the road, the birds came and they ate it up. The second one, it fell on rocky places and when it sprang up, there was no depth. So the sun came and what happened? It wilted. The third one, it fell on thorns, and it choked them out. And the fourth one fell on good seed. Now, I'm not an accountant or a mathematician, but I can, I, I can do math okay here. What was the percentage of failure of all that seed that was scattered? It's a 75% rate of failure. Like, man, he's not a, bad, not a very good farmer, right? People are like, well, what, what is he doing with that seed? Christ is saying, this is the reality. As we go out to... Sh- Spread gospel seed. There is a very narrow road that leads to life. 
Christ said, there are very few that are on that road, but there's a broad road that leads to destruction and many go down it. Most likely the Galatian church, there, there may have been some there where that seed had been scattered and things were going to choke it out. False teaching. Several of Christ's disciples abandoned and they said, this is too tough. Jesus said to Peter, you too? You guys going to go too? He said, where else could we go? <laughs> Only you have words of eternal life. So Galatians reminds us this morning, brothers and sisters, that what has power to radically change lives is not obeying a list of rules. It is not a building as nice as it is. It is not the music. It is not our websites and our podcasts. It is one thing. It is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. So I'd like to leave you with two action steps as we finish up our our time this morning in the Word. The first one is this. Something that we can do as a result of what we have heard this morning. Something that I'd like to challenge you to put into action this week. The first one. Identify and deal with hindrances in your life to running the gospel race. Is there a sinful behavior that you need to cut out? That you need to ask for accountability for? Is there a false teaching that you have believed in or entertained? The theme of Galatians... Uh, is not just how to be saved by grace. It is also how easily our hearts drift from the message of being saved by grace to something else. The second thing is identify and rescue strangers to God's grace. That's what Paul's doing here. He's, He's identifying and rescuing those that have been confused. And he says, you know what, you need to get back on this path. There were believers undoubtedly in the church in Galatia because they had an encounter with God through Paul. Have you ever thought about people in Concord that God would want to have an encounter with through you? Who would form part of RBC? Who in the weeks and months to come would be sitting here? Because like those parents of those people that believed one thing at one time and had an interaction with with this saint, he shared the gospel message, which is powerful. He said, I'm not ashamed because this is where the power is. So I want to challenge you to do those two things. Identify and deal with hindrances in your life to running in this gospel grace. And also identify and rescue strangers to God's grace. I love that language that we see in Jude. Snatching as if out of the fire. That is what God has done with each one of us, but he has not left us here to enjoy life outside the fire. He has called us to snatch others and to be ministers of his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel this morning. We thank you, God, that you do not love us more or love us less. You love us, Lord, because of Jesus Christ. In him, Lord, we are completely accepted. In him, we lack absolutely nothing. And in him also, God, you, you, you exhort us, you call us, you demand us, you command us to live a life that is worthy of the gospel message, that reflects the fruit of your spirit. So as your spirit manifests your character in our lives, people may be attracted to our great God. They might wonder how somebody could live this way and we might say if you see something good that is how my God is 
Lord, we pray that um, this gospel seed that we spread in this world would bear much fruit. Lord, we thank you that in Christ we are not slaves. You've freed us from lawlessness, but you've also freed us from legalism. Lord, you have deposited into our morally bankrupt account the righteousness of your Son. And Lord, that gives us great joy. And there's no greater joy that we have than walking in that truth. We experience, Lord, in walking in that light. Lord, I pray that you would teach us day after day what that looks like, that we might walk in obedience and submission of your Holy Spirit. Keep transforming us, Lord, we pray, into the image of your Son. Lord, we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with each one of us. In his name we pray. Amen.